So, Jay, Emma Frost is basically invulnerable in her diamond form, right? Well, Miles, she's diamond, so she's really tough, but she can definitely be broken, and theoretically she could be cut if you had the right tools. I mean, it has happened a few times. Wait, really? When? Oh, uh, let's see. She lost an arm one time, but that was reattached pretty easily. It was harder the time she shattered completely. How do you come back from that? Ultimately, Jean Grey was able to revive Emma with the help of the Phoenix Force. I guess that makes sense. After Hank McCoy reassembled her from several million individual shards. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 216 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome also to our amazing guest this episode. Right, we have with us here Dr. Andrea Letamendi, a clinical psychologist, writer, speaker, and consultant, and also co-host of the Arkham Sessions, which looks at Batman the Animated Series and other Batman material from a psychological angle. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we've got you here because we are looking, um, we're, we're dialing back from the volume of material we've been covering to take a close look at one specific issue of X-Factor. That's X-Factor number 87. Where the team all goes to see a therapist. So we figured you would be an excellent person to talk to about superheroes and psychology, since that's kind of, you know, something you're, you know more about than basically anybody in the world. I'm so glad that you thought of me. And I, I think of this episode that we're doing together as like the ultimate crossover, because as you know, I usually focus on Batman and his universe and, and all the characters, uh, typically within the animated series. And so it's really exciting to pull away from that and to uh, kind of dig into and unpack uh, other character stories. So this is going to be a lot of fun for me. And we, meanwhile, are so, so micro-focused on the X-Universe that being reminded that there are other superhero books out there, let alone other publishers, is always kind of an exciting rediscovery. Yup. But this is this is definitely an unusual issue, uh, X-Factor number 87. It's, like we mentioned, about the team in therapy, and that's literally the structure of the issue. There are no fights, there are no villains, it's just the team talking to a therapist and examining their own issues, their own experiences. And it's considered to be one of most people's favorite X-Factor issues. So... I've been thinking about that because I remember reading it the first time and I remember really liking a lot of it. And this time I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm finding myself a lot more mixed on it. Like I'm, I'm more impressed with the things I was originally impressed with and, and even less fond of the things that rubbed me wrong the first time. Yeah, for me, it was kind of split by character. I mean, we'll get to it later, but essentially I loved almost everything in the Polaris stuff. I didn't really know what to make of, but we'll, we'll get to that as we go. Um, Drea, what was your take overall on the issue, not being a, a standard X reader, but being somebody very familiar with psychology? The first time I read it, I, I enjoyed it. I, I liked the perspective where you are initially not seeing who's in the therapist chair. And so you're it, it's as if the characters are, are revealing themselves and their stories to you, the reader. And then I read, when I read it the second time, I I think that I was seeing some more layers that um, that drew upon like perspectives and viewpoints about uh, therapists and counselors and about the the treatment process. And I took a step back and wondered about the purpose of this. Like this is called X, X 
examinations. Uh, and so what are we, what are we trying to learn here? What, what was the purpose of these evaluations and assessments? And aside, of course, from the, the directive from the government to, to assess them, which I'm sure you'll get into, but I don't know that I left the, the issue feeling as though I understood the, the, the impact, the consequences, and then of course, like the overall, um, the overall outcome, which is really important when you think about the assessor, they, they are, uh, they're responsible for putting together some kind of uh, important report or outcome. And I felt that that was unclear here. That's a really good point. I think that's, that's definitely true and valid. Like, you know, what Val Cooper is getting at the end from the therapist is not necessarily something that's going to help her do her job better. That's going to be, you know, effective in a sort of organizational sense. Well, nor is it implied that she has read or is interested in it. If there is an actual follow-up, is that something she's even going to see? She she basically gives a, a list of her own her own theories, which are all extremely far off, and then gets kidnapped by a tentacle monster. She does, and, and we'll get to that. But for me, why I think the issue is, is effective, it requires a bit of suspension of disbelief, because, Drea, you're right, this doesn't necessarily make sense in terms of the structure of the plot. But what it does do is give us, I think, an excellent perspective into a lot of these characters as readers of characters in a fictional story. Like, for me, this is the single best portrayal of Quicksilver's personality I've seen in, in all of Marvel Comics. And so something we've definitely learned as, as experts in, in our show is that you kind of got to let go of certain details sometimes, and then there's good stuff behind it. It's just the details in the way aren't necessarily great. It's interesting coming out of that, too. I think Quicksilver is the one member of the team who actually continues to see Doc Sampson in, in the background of things. I think so, yeah. But I guess, uh, are you guys ready to dive into the issue itself? Sure. Yeah, all right. I, I should say, you know, I mentioned Doc Sampson. Um, he is not a standard X character. I don't think he's someone who, who we've mentioned on the show before. We should probably provide some background on him because he ha he's um, he's quite a guy. He is like so. Obviously, he's named after Samson, and I'm I'm very appreciative that 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 reference is not just like, hey, I have a biblical name. Well, and that's not his code name though. His his name is Leonard Samson. Uh, actually, he took Samson on later. His his original name was uh, something very traditionally Jewish. I don't remember what. But um, okay, to briefly go through this, and then we can actually get to the meat of the episode. So he's a Hulk character, which makes sense because Peter David was also writing Hulk around this time. And we've alluded to there being a therapist. He is the therapist in this. We don't actually find that out till the end of the issue, but it's not really much of a spoiler, so I'm okay with that. Yeah, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, it could be pretty much anyone. Uh, it could be, but his origin is delightful. So Betty Ross, uh, who is a character from the Hulk who is typically a love interest of Bruce Banner and the daughter of Thunderbolt Ross, the general always after the Hulk, she'd been turned into Crystal after a blood transfusion from the Sandman. Okay, when you say crystal, are you talking about the substance or the inhuman? Uh, the substance. So Doc Samson was going to use a cathexis ray, there's that word again, to try to siphon out both the Hulk's gamma radiation and also his psychological instability and zap that into Betty to cure her. That seems both scientifically improbable and like a fairly major scope of practice violation. It's the Marvel Universe. We've seen this before. It's like Reed Richards is good at all of the sciences. All scientists basically are. But then he infused the remaining psychological and gamma energy into himself, giving him super strength as long as he kept his hair long. What? That's also my origin story. Um, and after okay, that... Okay, but wait, let me let me get this straight really quickly, because this is... So, 
Did he then change his last name to Sampson, or had he already done so at this point? I think then he did. Anyway, it didn't really work out because Samson got romantically involved with Betty, and then Bruce Banner re-gamma irradiated himself so he could punch Samson a lot. So it was sort of all a wash, except that Betty wasn't Crystal anymore. Yeah, I don't. I, I feel like the less we talk about Bruce Banner's issues, the better chance we have of this episode being under four to six hours. So that's probably true. Although Drea, you would have a field day with him, I suspect. I would love it. Uh, so to just briefly touch on art, now we had Larry Stroman for a long time in X Factor, then we had Jay Lee during Executioner's Song. Now we have a name that may be familiar to people who read Marvel in later decades, Joe Quesada. Yeah, um, so Quesada was editor-in-chief at Marvel for years and years, and right now, I don't think he's super new, but he's still, he's, he's not a big name yet at this point, and he's doing a really good job of basically gently transitioning from Stroman's art. He is, and I think he's a good choice for this issue as well. I feel like an issue that's a bunch of talking heads, having somebody who can make that visually interesting and who can add in little background scenery and prop elements to add visual draw, that works really well for this one. Yeah, he does a really terrific job with body language, with with you know micro-expressions, with keeping t- essentially talking head sequences pretty visually engaging and interesting. Um, if, if you are a, a, f- a formalism nerd and if you are into the form, this is the kind of scene that artists tend to either love or hate to the point that um, legendary artist Wally Wood has, has created um, a thing that's been redrawn and passed around and immortalized and that at least one person has a sleeve tattoo of called you know, basically Wally Wood's 22 panels to use when your artist just gives you endless dialogue or something like that um, as, as a shortcut thing, because this is this is the kind of scene that comics artists tend to dread, second only to horses. <laughs> right. And actually, Drea, so you mostly focus on Batman the Animated Series in your show. That's got to be a totally different thing, but you have so much uh, psychological content. You have so much emotional content, and yet it's not just still images on a page. That's got to be a totally different experience uh, working on that, analyzing that. It is. We, we work a lot through or we work a lot from behaviors and um, and we make a lot of assumptions about motivations and about um, what we're not seeing on screen. So I'm appreciating. Uh, well, and by the way, early mid 90s is really an era I love as far as the uh, the spandex and the trench coats and the capes and just these really vibrant colors. And so I'm really enjoying this issue. Uh, but the expressions, the emotional expressions are really important, too, because we are not seeing a lot of action here. And so we have to draw from, uh, you know, figuratively from their uh, reactions to what the doctor's telling them. And it's really fascinating to see some of the different characters responses and the way that they might flip quickly or the way that they might uh, react. And a lot of that is through their facial expression. So it's I think the art is just crucial here. Yeah, and I mean, Joe Quesada, like, his, he's had so many different styles over the years, but this one that he starts off with, uh, with one of his first, you know, notable X issues, I think fits the issue beautifully. Yeah, and I think it's worth commenting on, and we're going to discuss this a little bit more as we're discussing individual sequences. He does an incredibly good job of personalizing the layouts and composition. You not only see him, you know, dynamically composing a bunch of pages about conversations, but doing it in ways that really effectively underline um, the thematic elements that he's ex- he's exploring with each of the individual characters. Although we start out in a super strange fashion on our first couple of pages with 
Wolfsbane once again recounting a pop culture based dream. You may remember that she had Rain's World a couple issues ago, which was a Wayne's World parody, of course. And now it's Rain and Simpy, with Simpy being a cartoon version of Feral. And, you know, it's it's very much a Ren and Stimpy reference. There's a Mutant Mutant Angst Angst song, and this is weird in 2018. Yeah, I was going to say, like all other Ren and Stimpy references, this is one we we wish in retrospect had not been made. I don't know. Do you buy this as Rain? This is, this is an odd turn that the character's taken. It's weird. Yeah, David keeps coming back to her having these pop culture dreams. I mean, Warlock was certainly pop culture obsessed in New Mutants, but that's new for Wolfsbane. But the therapist has an interesting take, that being that maybe she's just trying on different personas, searching for an identity that she's comfortable with. I find that um, this is this was probably probably the most analytic that the uh, the doctor became throughout this issue. Uh, later, we'll see a lot of questions that that aren't really they're they're more open ended and and they kind of put a lot of the explanation on the uh, the interviewee or, or the client. But here. It's just fascinating that without much context, this is the leap that the doctor goes into. Um, and, and it's it, I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily accurate. It we have dreams of all sorts of different things. And I I don't tend to uh, dig too much into dreams because uh, because they can be random. But if she is having a consistent pattern in her dream, then I think it's worth exploring. I, I, I do think that it's valuable to look into that if this has been ongoing. Well, and I was thinking, because it, it's been ongoing mainly in this run, and so you could just assume that it's, you know, Peter David deciding this is part of the character, but Peter David took over writing Wolfsbane after she had a really major life shift, after she was turned into a mutate who was unable to ever shift out of her partial wolf form lest her mind disappear, oh, X-Men. And so, I don't know, I mean, maybe... Maybe that's part of why she's having more identity issues than have been illustrated in the past, just because her the person she thought of as herself has now changed so centrally. Would, would that make sense? I do think there's a relationship there, too, with her father. And I, I tend to not go there so quickly, but it was mentioned in the issue that um, that the 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 loss or the sort of the um, the the lack of a strong, healthy bond there then led to her looking for this in other authority figures. And while that sounds so textbook, sometimes that's pretty accurate. And so I was interested uh, when I looked, I looked this up to see like, okay, what kind of person was, was Reverend Craig? That just sounds evil. I need to look this up. And uh, I did and found that uh, he, he was a, he was a reverend and and really raised her with really strict uh, religious and moral codes. And some might say that his uh, disciplinarian style, his parenting style, was this overcorrection, uh, maybe a response to his own sins, if you will. Uh, and so she unfortunately uh, grew up maybe feeling um, feeling not as bonded to him because of, of the nature of that relationship. And so because that's unreconciled, she, she looks toward other authority figures to, to find a connection, maybe one that's healthier. So I have a question building on that, which is how someone in, in Doc Sampson's shoes, how a therapist approaching a patient who they believe has this going on could do that responsibly because it, it seems like the the tendon, you know, the fact that she 
she tends to try really hard to please and defer to authority figures and especially male authority figures would be something that would make that process incredibly difficult and incredibly prone to even accidental abuse. Yeah, I think what's important is it, it's it's always um, the perspective, too, is always to think about what would be if we've identified some kind of problematic behavior or some maladaptive behavior, something that we we really want to focus on and consider change, um, you know, then that would help us to decide what what would be healthier ways to interact with people? What what is it? What is the unmet need? And so how do we how do we work toward uh, a healthier response or a healthier interaction. And I, I think that requires more information about well, what is it that, how is her interaction with, uh, with Havoc, with some of these other characters that she's, she's deferring to, do you, would you two say that those are problematic relationships? Well, the Havoc one definitely is simply because as, as we'll find out soon and has, as we've alluded to in the podcast, she's, psychologically bonded on a genetic level to havoc so like which makes no sense but it, it's x-men well i was gonna say basically genetics is to x-men as radiation is to the hulk and spider-man exactly <laughs> with occasional forays into magnetism but i think that could have been a healthy relationship because havoc's actually a pretty good guy and i think if it was more of a friendship or a mentorship that could have worked well yeah havoc is better at appropriate boundaries in this context than Rain is, which is good because he's the one who's in a position of significant institutional power and also much older. But um, I mean, I, I think I think without this, the, the Genosian stuff, without the mutate factor, it would be their, their relationship would be challenging only in the ways that her relationships with other prior authority figures have been. That doesn't re- remove that factor. She and Xavier, though, I think did have a very healthy relationship. Like, I think he was in some ways a healing figure, a surrogate father that worked pretty well, at least until he went off to space and disappeared. Well, yes and no, because he's also a character who basically expected absolute dogmatic obedience from his students and who, during her tenure there, did things like, you know, go rampantly evil a few times, at least once. I'm, I'm thinking of the Micronauts crossover, but and then they turned into a brood one time. But I mean, come on, yeah, that's and who, mild. Who started by. at like at the very beginning of their time there turned turned into a brood queen, and um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, and then and then left them with a with an individual who they had been told up to that point was someone who they should never be around and who was who was was a villain, and then um, the next person, yeah, and 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 Magneto tried. And then I'm I'm thinking of 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 under whose leadership reigns been, and I think the next the next person she she had as a, a team leader was Cable. Who okay, so she's had a rough run. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it says something that this is probably the most functional team leadership, at least dynamic, that she's been in. Poor Rain Sinclair. Poor Rain Sinclair forever. It's hard to be a fictional character in a medium um, designed to serially entertain a lot of readers. I, I just feel like looking looking back at this and now learning a little bit about her other relationships, what I would hate is for people to be punitive and 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 castigate 
reign when there are other parties involved who have some responsibilities. And if we're saying, oh, well, she's just entering into um, into a pattern of re-traumatization because she's in these relationships. But as you're pointing out, look who we have to choose from to be uh, authority figures for her. Yeah, I mean, even the best is not so great. Yeah, and most of those authority figures haven't been ones who she's chosen to be attached to either. Mm -hmm. I mean, including an an up through Havoc, because she's basically stuck with him right now. Second, we've got, you mentioned one of one of the best moments around this character ever. um, That is Quicksilver. And, you know, we didn't talk about this with Rain, really, but um, the costume design here is quite something. Yeah, he's in this nicely tailored suit and unlaced high tops, which is such a Pietro Maximoff thing. Like, very precise, except he doesn't give a shit about certain things. The unlaced high tops seem like a really odd move for a speedster. He could lace them up so quickly. I guess. Now, Pietro, true to form, doesn't want to be there. As far as we've seen so far, he doesn't really want to be anywhere. Um, He first joined X-Factor semi-accidentally, um... And in fact, when we, when his, for his first few days with the team, was convinced that his powers were slowly killing him, which they weren't. He had just decided this or, or been convinced of this by a series of anonymous postcards, signed an evil individual. Um, his marriage had just fallen apart. He's got a kid he's effectively estranged from at this point. And he does his 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 signature thing is that he does not like anyone or anything. He is he is incredibly and unfailingly snarky and makes it very, very clear that he's not interested in being part of this team. He's not interested in you know the in, in any kind of personal connection to anyone there. No one's really quite sure why he's sticking around. And I don't know, Jay, do you want to just read this dialogue he has here where he explains why he is the way he is to people, why he comes off as so harsh and abrasive and disconnected? Tell me, doctor, have you ever stood in line at a banking machine behind a person who didn't know how to use it or wanted to buy stamps at the post office? And the fellow in front of you wants to know every single way he can ship his package to Istanbul. Or gotten some counter idiot at Burger King who can't comprehend Whopper no pickles. Well, yes, I suppose. And how do you feel on those occasions? Impatient, irritated, a little angry sometimes. Precisely because your life is being slowed to a crawl by the inabilities or the inconvenient behavior of others. It's not a rational or considerate attitude to have, but there it is. Now imagine, doctor, that everyone you work with, everywhere you go, your entire world is filled with people who can't work cash machines. And thus, decades of Pietro Maximoff being one of the least likable characters in the Marvel Universe put in, for me, surprisingly convincing context. I really loved this. I thought this was so relatable. Uh, This is a character who I've known about. Um, I know about his superpowers. I, I like this character, but this is... You know, the the explanation here uh, is is so relatable. 
I don't know what it's like to be, uh, to have superhuman speed, but the, the anger he has is, I think it's understandable. And I don't know that you see a lot of empathy from this doctor. I think that there's an opportunity to like, just really connect. But again, that's not the job. The, I don't think the job was to connect and help this person. The job was to assess, right? So we don't see a lot of that empathy uh, relayed back. The, the thing about Quicksilver is that he gets it. He says in the beginning, there was a mission that was deemed traumatic. And that's why we're, we're talking to a counselor. And this is rubbish. Like this whole process is BS. And I think, I think that's just that authentic kind of expression. I think that's really relatable. And I don't, I, I think he's right. I would absolutely agree with him. Yeah. And he just seems so self-aware, not only about that, but also about his own issues and where they come from. And that was, that was fascinating to me that he just says, you want to know why I'm the way I am? Here you go. I've already thought this through. Well, this is someone who has, who spent the earliest parts of his career and significant portions of it on and off as an actual villain. And in general, ends up stuck in the position of playing, of playing a heel, of playing the, if not villain, the antagonist in any group he's been part of since then. And at the same time, has probably had more time for consideration and introspection, at least in relative terms, than anyone around him. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, if his brain moves as fast as the rest of him, he would have so much time as he's, you know, running around saving the world or trying to take over cities or whatever, depending on who he's working for, to, you know, introspect, to really figure his own stuff out. But also to an extent, in a frustrating way, I would imagine, to have a sense of what aspects of himself and his experience he can change or not change on his own. And it would be really futile. So so even if he could uh, get some healing, especially around his dysregulated anger, like let's just say that he sat down and said, yeah, I, I just really want to reconcile my feelings of angst and anger and frustration and be able to manage that, which I think is realistic. Like teach me skills on how to manage the frustration that I experience when I have to sit through what I consider these long periods of nonsense that I think, while that might be useful, the level of his power is insurmountable. I just feel like it's so, uh, it, it may not make much of a difference because he's so isolated in his, in his world and his superpower. And, and that to me means that, that maybe we should address the secondary emotion from this, which is the loneliness and sadness. Yeah, especially after everything he's been through with losing his marriage, losing access to his daughter, being on now a team with a bunch of people who he barely knows, like all of his old connections are gone. His 12 to 15 sets of nominal parents. <laughs> that too. Continuity is confusing. Yeah, so the Maximoff kids are, I think at this point they were still Magneto's kids, but their parentage has been rewritten maybe more than any other single aspect of continuity in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, I mean that loneliness, like there's there's the loss of connection, but there's also, yeah, just what you were what you were referring to, Drea, like the idea that he even the connections he does have and has had, they can only ever be so connected just because of this fundamental difference he sees, if if I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah, and and I do think while that's very like upsetting to truly think about, um, doesn't necessarily mean there's no hope for him. But it does work again, it requires somebody to be um on that pathway of, okay, let's work toward reconciliation. Like if there's, if there's some trauma involved in this, if there's reconciling loss and moving forward, but again, this therapist is assessing 
not providing intervention. And it's, I think it's really important to make that distinction. This is about us learning about these characters, why they're behaving in the way they behave, and especially what their primary and secondary emotions are, which in this couple of, of pages, we really learn quite a bit about, about Quicksilver. Is that typical, like in a workplace to have assessment be the main and only focus, like just to keep things quick by just doing that part? Or is this more of a, a construction for this issue, do you think? I think it, it can be if, if we think about evaluations that are issued for the purpose of determining somebody's mental health status or determining whether they can uh, be competent to work. That's usually the first step is some kind of intake or some kind of evaluation. Uh, it's interesting that uh, we still are unsure what the purpose of this evaluation is because, yeah, there are some some therapeutic relationships that follow an evaluation where you do have an intervention, you do have some identified goals for somebody. And I'm not, sh- and I, again, I'm not gathering that that's really the purpose of, of this, this therapeutic relationship. Some of the sense I get about Val Cooper, who's the character who presumably instigated this and who we, whom we see talking to Doc Sampson at the end is that she is, she does a lot of her decisions don't make a ton of sense. That's something that we continue to see you know, for years and years and years afterwards, she is, for instance, the character who thought it would be a great idea to bring sentinels to keep the um, remaining 198 mutants, quote unquote, safe after decimation. But yeah, she's she's someone who will, when her authority is challenged or when things aren't going in the ways she's expecting them to go, just sort of pull from a bag of tricks and potential solutions and seeing her, um, and the idea of her almost arbitrarily pulling this in is pretty consistent with her management style thus far. Is this a form of punishment? So we've, we've got our eye on you. And so therefore we're, we're going to have, we're going to insert this series of evaluations to remind you that you're not in control of this or that we have our eyes on you. I feel like Val Cooper's intentions are good. It just seems like she's a character that relies, that trusts bureaucracy so much that she just assumes that if she goes through the motions as they've been laid down, that that's the right thing to do, that that's going to work out the best for everybody. Because she does seem to really care about her team. She's just not good at every aspect of running it. Although actually, Drea's point makes a lot of sense too, given that the last story we saw these guys on before the big crossover involved them very directly and for the first time telling her basically, you're our liaison, you're not our boss, fuck off, we're going to do the thing we think is the right thing to do. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a good point. Maybe that's one of her motivations, conscious or not. Yeah, and the expatriate storyline. Well, we are a third of the way through, so let's move on to Guido Carousella. Strong guy. He's in his own session playing with a yo-yo and grinning almost too much the entire time, which I really love how Joe Quesada shows that with just him grinning almost maniacally throughout the entire session. Did it remind you a little bit of the way we've seen artists before draw Mojo and people who are in the Mojo universe with their the, the sort of distended grins? Absolutely, which which in turn reminds me of A Clockwork Orange holding people's eyes open. That was always what happened with Mojo, but his mouth was always held into a smile in the same way. It's it's forced happiness, and we learn a lot about why Guido in some ways does that to himself. This is actually one of my favorite sequences after Quicksilver. Yeah, the short version of this is that Guido's powers are challenging. Um, so we, we've seen that he has to expend any energy he, he absorbs. What we don't, and and we know that the fact that he that the shape of the his the odd shape of his body is a result of not expending all of that energy early on. What we don't know is that he had no idea of this when his powers first manifested, 
And one of the side effects of the energy he now can't get rid of and of, of the changes it's made to his body is really severe chronic pain. And that ties right into his personality, especially as a kid. He was like an A-plus student, a nerd, but he got picked on a lot. He got bullied. He didn't know how to interact with anybody, especially girls. And he learned to basically be a prankster because of that. I actually really love a quote we have here from Guido talking about his childhood. It hurt. And the more it hurt, the more jokes I made to cover it. Because you see, if people know you're hurting, either they pity you or they eat you alive. And that, we learn, is a big part of why Guido is the way he is. He doesn't want anyone's pity, especially this new team that have kind of been his first friends. Like, he doesn't want them to just see him as a victim or see him as, you know, a a patient even. So he keeps it to himself. He keeps him laughing. He keeps that smile just plastered on his face. And that that makes him so much more compelling than I think he's ever been. Before, he just seemed like this kind of selfish, hedonistic dude and it turns out that's an attitude that he's deliberately cultivating, a persona he's deliberately adopted just so people don't look any deeper. So just to clarify, this is a perma smile. Anytime you see this character, this is the level of grin all the time? No, but often he tends to be exaggeratedly jovial a lot. I got the impression that he was doing it sort of extra hardcore in therapy because this was a time when he was being forced or at least you know choosing to be more vulnerable than usual and so that seemed almost like a that smile seemed almost like a shield yeah it's strangely off-putting and uh it's uncomfortable right because the what he's describing is sad and and is traumatic and yet and and still he describes why his expression is the way it is so i think rationally there's a way to connect to that and at the same time it's uh It doesn't pull you in. Usually friendly expressions pull you in. This is an this is an interesting sort of keep you at arm's length. And I think it's because too much connection is painful. And it's interesting that even uh, the, the, the physical transformation, I understand, is both physically and emotionally painful because it brings back the history of trauma. Exactly. I mean, the first time his powers manifested were when he was getting the hell beaten out of him for having a crush on a girl and then accidentally got hit by a bus. I mean, not only was that physically traumatic, but that was just so symbolic of all the other traumas in his life. Yeah. And I think this is a good example of somebody who has a history of multiple uh, traumatic events. And so this is a good time to think back on uh, the idea of of schema that everybody is carrying with them, especially throughout this wonderful issue schema about themselves or about relationships and even how they feel about a therapist. And it's clear that, uh, that Guido's schema about himself is as long as I am outwardly smiling, as long as I put, put out the expression and the idea that I'm okay, then people will not pity me. And so then I will then I will think I'm okay. And it's a very twisted way to to kind of to to live to live your life, honestly. And it's not sustainable because we will experience, unfortunately, we will experience some kind of uh some kind of pain, some kind of uh difficult situation challenges, especially interpersonally. And it worries me that he might be very fragile. 
Yeah, and we definitely do see that come through in later issues. Like, we do see that smile crack when he can't hold it on any longer. And, God, he goes through some horrible stuff. He ends up the king of hell at one point. It's, it's not a great time for yeah, him. Yeah, I was going to say, decades later, we're going to see that very specifically snap. And very specifically in a situation that kind of mirrors when his powers originally manifested. Because why he does the stuff that he does in the sequence of things that leads to him briefly becoming the king of hell, I mean, is basically for a girl who's not interested back. Yeah, exactly. And those little cycles, that's one of the things I love about the serial storytelling of comics is that deliberate or not, you get these little repetitions, you get these cycles that just, it makes things seem maybe more connected than they actually are or actually were intended to be. And I appreciate that. Well, those, this story and that one have the same writer. So it's fair to, I think, I think it's, it's, that's, that, that, that synchronicity is deliberate seems more likely here than usual. That makes sense. Speaking of synchronicity, shall we move on to Multiple Man? All right, so Multiple Man's a cool dude, right? Like, what we know, if you've just been reading X-Books, here's roughly what you know about Multiple Man. He's a funny guy. He can break into multiple versions of himself with physical impact. Sometimes those versions go evil, um, which is a whole other conversation. He was Mara McTaggart's lab assistant on Muir Island for years, and he's basically pretty chill and jovial. And this is where you find out that Multiple Man has the saddest damn backstory ever. So I actually read his first appearance because I never had while we were preparing for this issue. It's even more messed up. Like in his very first appearance, you learn that when his parents realized he was going to have powers, they kept him isolated from the rest of the world on this farm for years and years and years. And then they both died in an accident and he just ran the farm for six years by himself before his containment suit started to malfunction and he had to go into civilization and talk like a very awkward character. Yeah, Professor Xavier was the one who originally hooked him up with the containment suit, right? Um, that was unclear in his first appearance. I, I think it was designed by, by his parents. I, I have to go back and read it. But Professor Xavier is the one that uh, helps him control his powers after Reed Richards fixes the broken containment suit. Ah. Uh. But, yeah, this, this I think is the first mention that we've seen of that origin of any consequence since the origin itself. And despite Multiple Man's very brief two-page appearance in this issue, I, I don't know, I just felt that resonating the whole time. And the one thing that I as I learn more about his, his, uh, upbringing and backstory is, uh, is of course <laughs> how important it is to have social support and social interactions early in life. And that of course, when we see his unmet needs right now, they relate to his powers and we've seen that a little bit, but I really like when, uh, when mutants powers, uh, are, interrelated with their psychology and how this may be a form of an adjustment or a form of reconciling um, some something that was uh, not fully developed or not fully addressed growing up. And, and it doesn't it doesn't really uh, take this doctor to notice that being alone is is his issue is, is really his problem. Yeah, and I can only imagine what that would be like having the powers that Jamie has where you're terrified of being alone and you have a way to, in a very literal sense, never be alone that just makes you feel more alone. Yeah. You you mentioned, you know, J Jamie, just his powers relating to his psychology and something we've seen a little bit of here. One of his duplicates was the first major villain in X Factor, and we'd, I think, one time before seen one of them sort of break off and, and go off on its own and, and not really 
want to go back to Jamie um, in, in the Fallen Angels miniseries. But that's going to become more and more of an issue as time goes on. And eventually we're going to see duplicates who are more and more differentiated as different as reflecting different moods or different aspects of his personality. Yeah, Matthew Rosenberg's current Multiple Man series actually explores that very heavily and I think very entertainingly and effectively. So does that make him more fragmented and uh, and and less? You know, that, that would make me think that all these versions that have are like just a sliver of his personality still do not make a whole person. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, I think so, and I think that's um, that's something that when Jamie's written especially well is focused on a lot by those writers. Like, he's a guy who can go do everything simultaneously. He can explore every possible way of being a person, but I think because of that, he's, like you said, scattered. Like, him figuring out who he is on a fundamental level, that seems to really be a challenge for him. Well, and he's a guy who is in a prime situation to really externalize a lot of who he is and to think of parts of his experiences and parts of his feelings and parts of his personality as literally other people sort of a modular identity yeah kind of but one of the things i like is when he talks also about himself being a prankster because we saw that with guido as well he also seems to have a little bit of self-awareness as to why he does that because it reminds me i'm alive and it gets people to notice me and when people notice me helps to make sure that i'm not alone and he punctuates that statement with, of course, creating a duplicate of himself. And that just makes so much sense for me. That that attention-seeking behavior, like, that's how you get people around you. If you don't really care whether it's positive or negative attention, then, hey, easy. And he's very good at that. What do you make of the association uh, exam? Oh, the word association? Yeah, yeah it's hard to say because, like, it seems like he's maybe being flippant or maybe that is the way his brain works, like having... Doc Samson say black and him just say Motown and having Doc Samson say alone and him say hell, like which of those are Jamie's real reflexive responses and which are him just trying to get a rise out of the dude. I don't get the sense that any of those responses are any of his, uh, any of his selves. So then that he is basically just trying to provoke a reaction that he's trying to keep the focus of what should be based on him based on the other person. Right. Like they seem to be either uh, deflections or... Uh, or distractions, and yeah, I'm I'm not sure. And this is an, uh, this is really a problem with word association techniques. Uh, I don't know that a lot a lot of more modern psychologists use this approach because we know that there's not a lot of evidence to show that that really gives us valid information about somebody's personality or their potential behavioral patterns that someone can respond in any way. And even if they did respond by uh, using words that describe what images come to their mind, does that really tell us a lot anyway? Yeah, Doc Sampson's uh, techniques seem to be kind of all over the place psychologically um, in terms of, you know, both like validity and also just him having apparently, you know, a a different type of technique for every single moment with every single character. Like he doesn't seem to to specialize in any direction. Well... What we know about his background is that he does his 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 approach to psychology as a field involves gamma radiation experiments. And I mean, I think it, it's it's I, I I don't know to what extent he'd he'd have been shown practicing before this, but I, I think it would probably be reasonable to extrapolate that he's just kind of an incompetent clinician sort of faking it at this point. I would agree with that. I'm not sure where he got his training or where he learned these techniques. Um and I, I was 
I was thinking that if he used word association with everybody, this would be a really boring issue, right? So it's it's uh, I'm not going to question why he only did this with um, multiple man. But I wonder in thinking about that technique, sometimes we do things not because of the validity of the technique, but to better understand a person um, just based on that fundamental interaction. And we do that a lot with questions. And I wonder if this approach specifically what was to kind of see if there were consistencies among these answers. Like, is this person fragmented just in general or... If I'm sitting with one version of this person, can I get some sense of consistency and alignment? That is that is one way I would probably use this technique. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess to Samson's credit, he does kind of cut to exactly that from, from that technique with Jamie. We've talked about the art in this issue some before, but this is this is one of the sequences where I feel like it really, really shines. Just the range of expression in what are functionally a long series of, of almost exact duplicate panels of of jamie it's very madrox yeah uh speaking of composition i love the next sequence with havoc as we see oh yeah 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 jay how, how would you describe the visuals on this one um so what they remind me of most actually um is jay lee's approach to drawing havoc into layouts in um in Executioner Song, like it's it's got that same same sense of just sort of intensely geometric style, but mostly it's a really clear, you know, Havoc is is obscured in a lot of the panels. He's either behind something or he's facing away. When we do see him, he tends to be in in fairly fairly guarded postures. Um the the last bit, the the last sequence is 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 just really, really stunning, but the the it it ends with him looking back over his shoulder to say something, and it's just it's it's really, really well put together. Yeah, it really conveys that sense of just unease and discomfort and paranoia. He's talking about how he always expects a crisis. He knows that something is going to happen, and if something bad happens, it's going to be his fault because he's the one in charge, and all eyes are on him. And this is this is. His first foray as a team leader, he got recruited to this and kind of talked into it despite significant misgivings and despite the fact that he was he was coming out of an era of basically first being, you know, and I, I, we've talked about this a lot, but Havoc is, has always been so reluctant to be a superhero and to be part of that world up to this point. This is the first time we've seen him really do it voluntarily. And even now... He has such profound and perpetual misgivings. Some say that Scott has imposter syndrome, and I never really understood that. As I learn more about Alex, this is this is more in alignment with imposter syndrome. That sense of even being told they're in the right position, even being given responsibilities, even showing some successes in their role to still have this uneasiness, this like gut feeling that something is about to go wrong and the sense that they're simply not good enough to be in their role. And I do appreciate some of the, uh, just the sense of hypervigilance and the sense of self-doubt and world doubt that, um, that these panels give us. I, I think that's really well done. Um, and I think that more and more, I, I, I really like that 
at least in the beginning, the therapist is just letting him talk, letting him talk about his, his sense of, of uncertainty and his sense of doubt and, and just his, you know, he can't seem to sit still. He's getting up. He's, he's one, one point he's, I don't know the way it's drawn. He's like behind some leaves. It's, you really get the sense that he's just always, always on the lookout. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I also get the impression that this is usually something Havoc keeps to himself. He's usually like, is sort of this this silent watcher just doing what he can to herd the cats that are his team away from danger in the right direction so that it doesn't fall back on them and doesn't also fall back on him. That's one of the things that I think is most effective and most ironic about this sequence because, Drea, you mentioned that people talk about Scott as having imposter syndrome, but you don't really see it. And one of the reasons for that is that when it's explored, it tends to be explored in contexts that very, very deliberately say, you know, that this is something that he makes a point of not showing people. This is not, this is you know, that the front of having, having things together is, is incredibly important to him. And so the idea that that's both what Alex is responding to and what he's then in turn projecting to the people around him, you know, pretty much in duplicate is, is. I feel like if Alex and Scott just finally had a real conversation, which they do so seldom, it could really help. They do later in the series actually. And it's great. Oh, okay, I don't remember that part. Well, that's good to yeah. hear. I did learn that Alex replaced a, a dead son. Part of his origin was replacing the dead son of, of parents who unfortunately tragically lost their son. And he knew that. And does does that, uh, is that correct? Is he's aware of of his, he has this responsibility to to take the place of, of, uh, of, I actually don't know who that was, but somebody who, um, who he could never really live up to. So that will have been correct once that concept is introduced, which it hadn't been at the time this issue came out. Okay. That's going to be, that's going to be explored in, in X factor number zero, which I think is we're we're a while away from yet. And yes, I know that numbering is really counterintuitive. <laughs> um, <laughs> But but yeah, the the brief brief summary of that is that after after the plane crash, um, Scott was in a coma for a couple of years and got sent or swooped up by Sinister. Alex got adopted by a family in Hawaii whose older kid had died and who basically really wanted to bring him in as kind of a replacement for this kid who was like the world's most perfect teenager. Wow. Okay. And yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, he is a Summers, so I guess that comes with a certain level of your life being terrible in the most dramatically appropriate ways. Speaking of people whose lives are terrible, oh, Polaris, and oh, this part of the issue. This part, I don't know, I, I felt a little weird about this. What about the two of you? I have a lot of trouble with how Peter David writes Polaris in general, and I mean... It's not just him. She's a character who's written inconsistently, who's been perpetually underwritten, and who I think has taken the brunt of a lot of the worst kind of echoing Silver Age powerful women are out of control and super villainous and, you know, whatever term you are using to skirt around saying hysterical because, you like, it's... 
And you see this again and again and again with how Polaris is portrayed. And it's one of the reasons my very favorite hands-down version of her is the one on, on The Gifted, which bypasses pretty much all of that and addresses a fair amount of it pretty directly. And yeah, that's been here. And this is this is weird. And it's it's a Polaris having her be a character who's def, who defines herself almost entirely by how other people see her. Um, and in in context of of other people is always weird. She's someone who's had ongoing issues. She was she was possessed by by malice, who's this little evil entity in a goth choker for a while um immediately preceding this before that or no sorry after that after that um her erstwhile maybe kind of retconned away from being but for a while was sister caused them to swap powers during which time polaris basically got super strength and got super huge and muscular and that just sort of gradually wore off and she got her original powers back over time it makes sense to me that she's that that control is something that's incredibly important to her and especially control with regards to herself and and to an extent her body because of the zalady and stuff but i just i just uh i well let's let's cut to the the core of the scene which is that she's very closed off and doesn't want to be there I, I think jay like you mentioned she doesn't like people getting into her head she she outright says it i mean there was also eric the red there was the shadow king there was mesmero at one point and she's the only thing that really does animate her is when she very takes a big reach to interpret something Doc Samson says as being about her weight, as saying that she's fat. And she gets really upset about this. She gets really defensive. And when she comes back later, she's wearing an incredibly revealing new costume and talking about how, no, she's comfortable with herself. She can be bold. She knows she's attractive. She knows that she's a great person. And she, it, this is a very hostile statement as, as she sort of throws it at Doc Samson. And I don't know. like It just seems like a, such a strange turn for this to be such a big deal for her suddenly and for this to be her defining trait that is in this issue all about characters' internal worlds. Yeah, I found a lot of this problematic. And I think while... I can understand that her schema is about her body and that her value is tied into her body in such a way that she has to, in a very brazen approach and almost a, a confrontational way, will bring it up and will show it. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to see her. She, she what pulls her shirt up uh, to show us her, to show him her midriff uh, in this very kind of like confrontational manner. And like you said, uh, n nothing was said about her appearance. I think what was said was about in general, you're a very smart person. I've seen your files. I know you have a high AQ. And so therefore you're already aware of your own, your own flaws, your own shortcomings. And she just makes this leap to, her body that her she isn't she is saying to us like anything involving her flaws is immediately tied to to her body and imperfections related to her body and it's also yeah it's drawn in such a way that it is very um it it's very bold it's it's not empowered it's so interesting because you'd think that because she's a strong person and because 
of some other elements that are throughout this issue, this would be about her looking and feeling empowered, but it, it doesn't come off that way. Yeah, it comes off as just fully defensive. Like she's, I, I almost wonder, I mean, so she's had all this mental control. She had her body physically altered by Zaladin. Like, I don't know, maybe this is a way for her to feel like she can have some control, that the nature of her body is at least something that she can be in charge of. And so thus, anytime she even thinks anybody might be going in that direction, she just is ready to to fight, uh, maybe? Or redirects criticism in that direction because that's the thing she can or feels like she can address. I don't know. Well, and that's, you know, I have to say, it's not totally unrealistic when when we are, when we experience a lot of situations where we don't have control, I think the the complete mind control is is the, the X-Men narrative here. But if we think about situations where we feel like we don't have a voice or we don't have uh, our own thoughts to share and to contribute and we're in those situations, a lot of us do feel like my body is the only thing that in this point in time I can control. And that's where, that's when, unfortunately, um, eating disordered behavior and, you know, body image problems come into play because technically for many of us, that's something that we can control. Here though, it, it seems to it seems to be thrown in our faces in a way that that is very um i'm not sure it's very volatile it's almost like uh it's almost like she uses this as a weapon and turns it around on the therapist and asks for a compliment and he compliments her and that's where i feel the most uncomfortable i think that's i think i realized what gets me about the sequence and it's not just the things she says and does, and it's not just the things he says and does. It's the way it's paced and played. So this is split into two parts, one early in the issue, one much later. And it feels sitcom-y in ways that the others don't. Like, it feels like we're getting two halves of a gag, except it's not a gag and it's not funny, but it's played like it is. Yeah, I think especially with Samson's response when she asks how she looks and he he says that, she sends his hormones into overdrive, which I'm pretty sure he should lose his license for just that sentence right there. But yeah, there's uh, there's a feel to it that feels a little more certainly still dark, but like flippantly dark. I don't it not even flippantly dark like it. And I I am I am overreaching to an extent here, but I, I I'm saying as an editor, as someone who makes comics, this is like if an artist and a writer turned in these pages to me, I would assume that these were pages that the artist and writer intended to have be or genuinely believed were funny. Like, it feels like it's it's not just over the top. It's It feels like it's being played as a joke. Well, I think the pen dropping and everything kind of implies this is this is meant to be taken, I don't know, very... Um, it's meant to be taken with humor and it's such a contrast from the other characters where we've got these characters who we've presumably been judgy about to an extent and are getting these these bits of empathy for and and, and perspective on and with her it just it, it it yeah it's like it's being put on display as a gag and those are our six members of x-factor and there's 
a brief epilogue, as I think we alluded to before, Val Cooper talks to Doc Samson and she just gets all of the characters almost exactly wrong before storming off when he tells her to take sensitivity lessons and getting attacked by a tentacle monster. Yeah, she just gets dragged off by a bunch of multicolored tentacles with um, with teeth, which I assume will have you know larger connotations, but which for now is sort of a good object lesson in why you don't do armchair diagnosis. <laughs> right. But yeah, so Polaris aside, I don't know. I still really, really like this issue overall. Like I, I, I enjoyed coming back to it. I especially enjoyed, I think, the strong guy and the multiple man uh, writing and the Havoc art. But uh, yeah, the, the Polaris, definitely a little weird. Still, it's a classic issue for a reason, I think. I agree. Overall, I think it's useful, especially if there was a catastrophic event, this this uh, critical incident. Is it time then to sit down and and just debrief and just take take a, an assessment of how everybody's responding? Now, I get that there are multiple groups that were involved in this catastrophic event. And so I'm still unsure as to why these particular figures need to be uh, assessed and are, are were careful about like how they've reacted to the 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 event. But I like that approach. I think that we should do this more often. We have tons of of traumatic events and adverse events that happened to a lot of the characters that we're following. And why not take a moment to see how those events have impacted them? And then what will happen after this? What is the aftermath? I think the rough answer to the why them and nobody else, narratively at least, is that they are the only one of the teams with any kind of external oversight. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. Although, I mean, there are telepaths on, you know, the X-Men who could help out. Actually, you know what? That's a segue to our first listener question. Right. Um, so Asimov Fangirl tweeted to us to ask basically how, tele- how telepathy might interact with and simplify or complicate a psychologist's practice and whether it would make sense for telepaths to be required to complete coursework in psychology. Is that so the psychologist has the the telepathy power or the or the patient does? Um, in, in, I think in this theoretical scenario, a psycho- the psychologist would. Absolutely. I think, I think that there are certain boundaries that one has to follow. And, uh, if, if one can, they, they need to control just how much they're, uh, tuning in to their, their patient's thoughts and feelings. If anything, uh, an extreme level of, of utilization of their power could lead to, burnout or compassion fatigue and and that's really not healthy for the therapist that's especially interesting for you to say so because the main telepathic therapist i'm familiar with in the marvel universe is emma frost who is not exactly known for her compassion and i wonder if that makes her more effective or just less ethical it could be both i mean i don't think that's what makes emma less ethical i think there are a <laughs> lot of other things that do no i mean i i think she's she's an interesting case because she's in some ways less ethical, but in some ways much, much better at boundaries in ways that, for instance, Charles Xavier isn't. And that leads to a sub-question. In the same vein, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, if Xavier were a practicing specialist, how many patient conduct laws would he have broken? All of them? Oh, he actually has been one. I just realized that. He was, he, he, I don't know if his background's in psychology, but he was at least a, a counselor in an unofficial capacity for a pretty long time, which was how he met and hooked up with one of his patients. And then had a kid with her. Yeah. 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 Charles Xavier is terrible. Should not have any authority. I mean, I'm pretty sure in the world of psychology, that would just be like the end of your career, right? I assume. 
ideally. Yeah, if you hook up with your patient, you will lose your license. I mean, I guess uh, the silver lining is that he was never licensed in the first place, so hey. Oh, that scene. Yeah, that that goes back and forth, and what his credentials are vary wildly over the years and over iterations. Um, so, yeah. But yeah, basically um, any number of things that he does on a daily or so basis would be probably sufficient. I mean, depending on the writer. But speaking of Xavier's relationship with Gabrielle Haller... Well, end of Legion, another anonymous listener asked us on Tumblr, how do you feel about Legion, both the comics iteration and the television version of the character, as a portrayal of mental illness? Andrea, are you familiar with Legion either through the comics or through the TV show? I did watch the first season of Legion, and uh, I was scared off a little bit in the beginning because I just didn't appreciate the portrayals of uh, of the institution and the various uh, interventions and techniques. Little by little, I, I got back into it and I appreciated it. I, I think one has to um, see this within the, uh, the right uh, narrative, the right fictional narrative to have an appreciation. Um, and, and I, I liked it. I, I, I appreciated it. Um, but then I didn't watch the second season. So there's that. So I haven't yet either. And no spoilers, please. Um, I have, and we've, we've talked about this before and I'll link in the visual companion to this post, to the episode where, where Cy Spurrier came on specifically to talk about, about Legion and, and about this stuff. I have really mixed feelings about Legion. I think he's fascinating. I think he's a rich and really neat character, but I think, I think as, as, in terms of representation of actual mental illness, he has fallen flat from before his first appearance um, when he is, I, I believe, described as autistic um, with the symptom set of dissociative identity disorder. So to, to describe that symptom, symptom set. So um, he's represented for pretty much his entire lifespan in the comics, the absolute worst of lay people writing mental illness and writing therapeutic relationships and, and all of that stuff. And I think his, his issues as an extension and complication of his power set are a really cool and really interesting idea. I think in a fictional universe where representations of any kind of neurodivergence and also of mental illness are few and far between to begin with and tend to be incredibly, incredibly poorly conceived having him as as the most visible example of those things is a massive problem. This is one of those examples where I would encourage or recommend not using labels of mental health or mental illness in that you might end up inadvertently um, doing a disservice to the community and so one of the one of the questions I get a lot is like, well, how do I write a good character who has diagnosis X, right? Like a bipolar disorder or a dissociative identity disorder or borderline. And my first question is usually like, well, why? Why? Why do they have to have that diagnosis? Like, is there a reason why you need to use that label? And the answer better not be, well, I, I just want it. I want it for the cred. Like, I want to sound like I know what I'm talking about. Um, if you write a character without utilizing the diagnosis or reference 
to uh, psychopathology that way, then you actually give yourself so much more space, so much more room to explore a character's dynamic and their, uh, you know, the way that their mind works. And, and then you, you don't have to worry about how accurate you are with representing that community of people who actually in real life have that diagnosis and live with the di- that, that diagnosis. Well said. Yeah. How do you balance, how do you balance responsibility in that kind of, in, in handling that with calls for or need for textual representation? I think there's a sensitive part of that. And, and it, we, we actually had this problem with, with DC comics recently where a, uh, a number of characters were given a DSM diagnosis by a, uh, a, a therapist, um, not a psychologist, another, another type of mental health professional. And I, you know, on our podcast, we, we really dismantled that because we felt that it was unnecessary and we tend to not do that on our show too much unless we really want to discuss that particular mental health identity. Um, but what we usually find is that if, you know, unless you want to tell a story about this, uh, presentation and that is the core of your narrative, then I really, you know, I often just discourage it because you can, you can certainly do more harm than good. And then I usually understand that, of course, these are wild worlds and universes with gamma rays and and uh, genetic mutations and all sorts of presentations that go well beyond what we see in in our realm. And so I think I think it is a balance of telling a creative story and not being limited to uh, to the the lanes and the the identities that that we are limited to here. All right. So I think I think that about wraps things up. Um, Drea, thank you so much for, for joining us. Where can folks find you online? The best way to interact with me is on Twitter. My handle is at Arkham Asylum Doc. I'm on Instagram, Arkham Asylum Doc. And the website where you can find all 121 episodes of the Arkham Sessions at this point is underthemaskonline.com. All right. And we will again link to all of those in the visual companion. And as a recent convert to the Arkham Sessions, highly recommended listeners. This is a really cool show. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So speaking of our listeners, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Um, Some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Um, With 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 the lack of the of a specific villain in 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 the issues we covered today, I think we're we're going back to an old standby and passing the mic to Silver Age Magneto. You simpering simpletons sit in a chair and talk about your feelings, as if such frivolity matters in the slightest. Magneto, the master of magnetism, has need of no emotion but evil. Does Zack Kraniak, the gladiator of gravity, speak endlessly of self-realization? Nay, Zack raises whole cities into the sky and demands ransom. Does Eldgith, the regent of radiation, trace anxiety's long-buried origins? Of course not. Eldgith raises a race of super-mutants from the irradiated mud itself to menace mankind. My brotherhood of evil mutants shall soon dominate the feeble homo sapiens that dot this world like insignificant insects. 
and no amount of therapy can stop us. And let's hear a counterpoint from the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought your team was running smoothly, B. That the misfits you had recruited had resolved their differences and assembled themselves into a well-oiled crime-fighting machine. You thought wrong. Instead, you're sitting on a powder keg. And Chris Osborne's arrival is just the match to set it off. Drea, thank you again so much for being on the show. This was such a blast. Thank you both for having me. This was so much fun. And again, leaving DC for a bit and enjoying the Marvel uh, characters and narratives is is really a joy for me. So thank you. Absolutely. And anytime. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. Special thanks to our guest this episode, Dr. Andrea Letamendi, whom you can hear on the Arkham Sessions. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the X-Men head to Russia for a family reunion. And everything goes about as well as you'd expect. 